Hello, it is Amy. I am back at it again. And this time I have another episode of Buddy Banter, which means we are live on my channel. Yay! I only do this once a month because I'm in other live streams and it's uh, kind of nerve wracking. And so I try to keep it to once a month. Uh, and I do specifically Buddy Banter, which is where I have a friend come on my channel slash now I'm a podcaster, so slash podcast, uh, and I have we talk about a topic of their choice. And today I have Lo the Links. You've seen them about, what, Lo, three times on my channel so far? Yeah, that's that sounds about right. right. <laughs> so yeah, they are back again. And trust me, they will be back after this as well, because uh, we are, we have lots of couple names, but I think we've decided that Links Fire is, is going to be yeah. our couple name. Uh, but we, yes, uh, Lo and I have a wonderful friendship, and I was very excited that they agreed to come on for Buddy Banter. But before we get into it, you know how I do, Lo. I like to get those sweet, sweet plugs out in the beginning. So why don't you tell us what's going over um, at your blog? And for those that don't know you, what is your blog about? Well, uh, my blog is loadedlinks.wordpress.com, uh, and I do sort of intersectional feminist analysis of different types of fiction, mostly uh, A Song of Ice and Fire and His Dark Materials. Sometimes I'll throw something else in as well, um, but mostly those two. And uh, just this weekend, I think it was, I published uh, an essay about His Dark Materials where I wrote about uh, navigating the world as a marginalized person, specifically in the HDM world as someone who doesn't have a demon. What is that like? How do people treat you? How do people mistreat you? And those of uh, you that don't know about his dark materials, the demon is basically an extension of your soul. Exactly, but personified in an animal. In a cute uh, little fuzzy edible. Super cute animal. <laughs> Watch uh, his dark materials just for the cute demons, especially season two, which Lo talked especially about on the channel. for the red panda. Red panda! <laughs> yeah, so uh, I wrote about that. And um, then next essay is going to be about A Song of Rice and Fire and the Night of the Laughing Tree uh, and a sort of trans queer reading of that awesome i'm so excited for that one uh lo knows that i was creeping on them early on in the in the fandom uh and reading their essays and and uh loving them uh as well so and uh, those of you in the chat and listening um they use they them pronouns so please make sure that you either use lo or they them when referring to them because they are awesome and i know you want to refer to how great they are uh so thank you so much lo for being on here and for plugging your stuff i'm very excited so now we're gonna do for me. So those of you watching, you're on my YouTube channel, but just in case you forgot where you were, there it is, youtube.com slash Blackfire. I am in podcast form now. Check me out on Anchor, on Podbean, on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and I'm still working on Apple Podcasts. That's the the big one. Um, I'm hoping to be on there soon. I have applied, we'll, we'll see. And uh, my blog is aswafchineselit.wordpress.com. I mostly look at A Song of Ice and Fire through an Eastern symbolism lens, but I have branched out to his dark materials, the witch, our last airbender and soon the poppy 
War, uh, which I will have Le uh, Low back on for that. I was about to call you Links, which still works because it's the <laughs> translation of Low. Uh, but yeah, I'm very excited for that. I have a lot coming up for you all. Um, I believe next Buddy Banter, I'm going to have Yogi on from Through the Moon Door, Mindor's Two Words. And uh, who knows what topic he's going to pick. You'll have to stay tuned. If you follow me on Twitter, then you will, uh, you will find out what the topic of that is before you get to watch it. So that'll be very fun. Uh, so please follow the links below. I do have my Twitter and Lowe's Twitter as well as their blog. Um, so yeah, and those of you that know, I uh, preach the good word of the poppy war every single time on this channel. Please read it. It is an amazing series. Um, and yes, I am proselytizing everyone to it. Uh, yeah, we're going to have a really good time. So Let's go ahead and get into this topic, Lo. I'm so excited. So this is my third episode of Buddy Banter with Lo the Lynx. And they picked a really interesting topic, which is about politics and contemporary issues in fantasy. We're also going to talk a smidgen about sci-fi, but we will stay mostly with fantasy. So uh, you'll notice that the uh, the title kind of poses a question, and you probably know where we fall on that uh, audience as far as can we separate politics from fantasy? So Lo. Now it's officially tradition because this is the third time I've asked it. Why did you pick this topic? Well, because sometimes when you hang out on the internet, people will uh, argue uh, that you should not bring uh, contemporary politics into um, fantasy discussions. And as someone who is getting their master's currently in gender studies and focusing on trans studies, that is just a very strange idea to me, uh, essentially. Um, and uh, I actually wrote an essay about a year ago now about how uh, I cannot keep politics out of fiction uh, because I, I was just a bit annoyed with people saying that you should. Um, and I don't feel like it's possible to do that. So we'll get into why. Uh, but I felt like you were the per perfect person to discuss this with. Uh, so yeah, we've talked it. about this a couple of times uh, after doing streams. Uh, we would be hanging out in back backstage, the virtual backstage, and be talking about kind of how uh, you know we both do. Um, queer analysis and feminist analysis and how the idea of uh, kind of separating the art from the artist and also separating contemporary themes from what is supposed to be in a medieval time, which we will definitely get to, and how uh, we do believe, and you know, those of you that are watching and listening, if you hold this opinion, I we're going to be very respectful, but we do refute your opinion. And that is because it is a privileged position to separate uh, issues of transness issues of sexuality, issues of um, race and um, from, and disability from fiction. And uh, that's kind of what we're going to talk about. And we're also going to talk about themes within the fiction itself that are obviously reflections of our modern times. And so, uh, you know, Lo and I are both uh, queer people and it's, it's because we are marginalized, it is difficult for us to separate it. And it does tend to be cis hetero white people that I've talked to about this who say that they can separate. And pretty much every other person I've talked to is a person of color or queer person has said, you're crazy for even saying <laughs> saying that, right? Um, so I do think that's just, you know, that's just kind of a disclaimer write-off. We are going to be respectful and we hope that those in the chat will as well. Um, 
mods, feel free to use that sweet, sweet ban hammer of justice if someone is, uh, is getting out of line. <laughs> but we are here to talk openly about uh, the themes that we see in this fiction and why we it's to us so obvious that you cannot separate this and that the uh, the artist and this idea of um, death of the author irks us. Um, and actually, let's start with this term, death of the author, low, because Bartz was the first person to talk about that. And he actually didn't mean it in the way that we use it now colloquially. Um, so, Lowe, have you, uh, have you read Bartz's death of the author in its original? I have not, um, but I'm mostly aware of... Um, uh, of uh, what he what he said, uh, and that is, I mean, the point of that term originally uh, was in a sort of literary literary analysis, like academic scholarly mm -hmm. way. Should you ignore the intention of the author when analyzing it? Um, yeah, and I mean that that's not really how it's used like you said, today in, in the discourse, uh, especially online. Um, but I know our friend Mary posed a really good question about that on Twitter, um, about what we think uh, about that. Um, and she's obviously, she's a very clever person who has read parts. Um, and... Um, yeah, I I know some people are annoyed uh, by how uh, death of the author is discussed currently, um, and uh, um, yeah, it's it's not always discussed in its original context, which I guess is a bit ironic given it's the death of the author, um, but. Um, uh, yeah, I think there, there's a. I think you can you can make a point that in a sort of academic, scholarly way, you can uh, decide to not focus on the intention of the author uh, when analyzing, but um, at least um, uh, at least I think in more like fandom discussions, I think it's very hard to. Uh, to ignore that and especially to ignore the artist and even more impossible to, to ignore the context in which they and we live. Yeah, and, and uh, Lo, it's been about four years since I read Death of the Author, but I did read it in a theory class and I remember it being strictly about feminists, or pardon me, about, not with Bart, um, strictly <laughs> about literary analysis, which is what you and I both do. And there's this idea that you can look at the text within its own world, separate from a creation of the author in their own time, right? Um, and that's kind of, I think, what Bart was going for. And I don't necessarily disagree with how we've now colloquially, pop culturally interpreted that, but it is a away from, we'll talk about original intention, right? It's all about original intention, what Bart is talking about, what the author intended or taking that away. Well, Bart, what he originally intended, it's kind of changed. Uh, so I think that we do take it as the more common way to say it is, can you separate art from artist, right? And so I actually, Lo, do you know that I like polls? 
<laughs> I did a poll. Uh, that's what I do on my Twitter. So please follow me on Twitter. I love those sweet, sweet polls. And I did a poll and I said that you and I were going to talk about contemporary politics and issues and fantasy and asked if, if you either A, always separate art from artist, B, sometimes separate, or C, never separate art from artist. So I got uh, 37 votes. So mm, darn, come on, people. I want a little bit more than that. I usually like about 60 or 70 to say that it's, uh, you know, it's pretty representative. I've had like 300 votes sometimes on some uh, polls, but we had 18% uh, say that they, 18.9 exactly, say I always separate them. And then we had 78.4% say sometimes, and then 2.7 say never separate. So a lot of people are in the middle. I would say, Lo, that you and I are on never separate. <laughs> uh, or always separate, or never separate, sorry. Uh, we always see them as uh, an extension of the author, whereas those who sometimes separate is, is the majority because I think what that says to me, Lo, and, uh, you know, feel free to interpret the data however you like. I see that as people say it depends, right, on if the artist, you know, is this artist anti-Semitic? Are they anti-trans? Did they just say something slightly problematic, right? There's this idea of it depends, right, on the situation. And then there are people that always separate them. Almost 19% said that. So um, those are people who say that they are able to appreciate the art within its own universe, and don't consider the art artists themselves, which um, is kind of sort of getting close to what Bart was saying, but not quite. Um, and a lot of people I hear all the time say that it's easier if the artist is dead, right? You can crap on H.P. Lovecraft very easily for his racism because he's dead, but then they find it a little harder for something that they have these childhood memories of, like with Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. and. I mean, for a long time, I tried to ignore Yeki Rowling. I swear I did, um, but it's just grown impossible. So, I mean, I feel that uh, because I used to love Harry Potter. Um, but I mean, we'll get into this later, but um, uh, it's, it's definitely very difficult to ignore the artists when they're alive and loud. Uh, it's easier if it's, uh, you know, someone you know less about or they're dead and uh, that, yeah, then it's easier to ignore it. But I still think it's very difficult to not consider context at all. Yeah. Uh, and, and Lo, there are, you know this because you're in academics, there are really two schools of literary analysis. One that, that does kill the author and focuses on the work in itself. And then the other who integrates the biography of the author and their personal views into it. Um, I am of the school that we should look at the biography of an author. So in all of my papers, when I'm looking at a novel or a short story, if we know who the author is, which because I do Chinese literature can be difficult because of the time period I do, which is uh, around 1600 to 1920, sometimes it's impossible to know who it is. However, if you do know who the author is, I always add biographical information in it, right? So, for example, one of the authors that I look at, he was born in 1895-ish and died in 1966 in China. So he was born during the last dynasty of China. And he, because he was not Han Chinese, he was Manchu, who were the ones ruling China. He had this privilege when he was born. He literally got a government stipend. All of a sudden, it's overthrown. 
and it's the Han Chinese kind of nationalism comes back and he is discriminated against. Like, you don't think that affected his literature? And then all of a sudden the communist revolution and in the end he killed himself because of the cultural revolution. You don't think that affected his literature, right? There are these traumatic things that happen in an author's life that if you ignore it, I, I think you're actually missing the bigger, bigger picture and the, I don't think you can do micro analysis unless you can do meta analysis. I'll put it that way. If you can't see the bigger picture, how can you look at the details? Yeah, and I mean, uh, for me, I don't always focus on uh, on the biographical part, but it's definitely hard to ignore it and you can't ignore it. Um, and yeah, uh, Anna made an incredible point. Who would have uh, thought that uh, Stephanie Meyer would be the least problematic, less problematic than Jake Rowling in 2020? Exactly. Um, I would still argue that Stephanie Meyer is uh, a bit problematic. Um, yes. I keep going on a long spiel about the Twilight books, but yeah. Um, Yes. Uh, uh. Margot has another great point mm -hmm. here. Um, I'll just read this out, especially for those. Thank you for listening in podcast form, those who are listening. Uh, or if you have this YouTube video on in the background while you're washing dishes, we'll read this out for you. Um, so Margot says, I feel like death of the author is often invoked to conveniently hard uh hand wave or ignore the biases or unsavory opinions of a creator that show up in a work, especially if it's implicit or subtextual. Yeah, I subtextual, feel like this, co <laughs> this comment just sums up my entire view of Harry Potter. <laughs> All right, we're, um, we're done with the stream. Thanks for coming, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Margo. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but that, that's, yes, I think she really hits the nail on the head there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so actually, let's go ahead and jump into it. We're going to talk basically about four works, and those in the chat should be, uh, or it should be familiar with these. We're going to talk about Harry Potter. We're going to talk about Song of Ice and Fire slash Game of Thrones. We're going to talk about His Dark Materials. And we're going to talk a little bit about The Mandalorian because of the latest news about Gina Carano. Uh, so would you like to start with Harry Potter, Lo? Or did you want to start with something else? Uh, it doesn't matter to me, but I want to highlight the comment that Amy makes in the chat uh, first. Um, Is it about this one? Yes. Yes. Uh, I feel like for me, death of the author doesn't mean ignoring everything. It just means that if you got something out of a text that wasn't intended, that can be valid. And I definitely agree with that. I mean, most of the things I write about are things that I don't think the author intended. Um, they might have intended parts of it subconsciously, um, but... I mean, I do a lot of trans and queer reading, and queer reading is... Uh, sort of reading against the grain, finding the leakages of queerness in the text. Um, and that often uh, means that you you find things that the author probably didn't intend. Um, yeah. So I do, I, I do agree with that point. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, I, so that's the thing, is that we both do queer readings of fiction, and that is actually in many ways killing the author, because I doubt that that J.R.R. Tolkien meant for Sam and Frodo to be in examples of a queer relationship, but we could read it that way. That does not mean that he intended it. So Lowe and I are not completely against that. However, when it comes to these problematic views and representations of minorities and marginalized peoples, that's where we draw the line. At least that's that's kind of what I've gathered from our discussions. Uh, so, you know, this idea as originally intended, talk about original intent, of Bart's, of looking at uh, being able to read things in the text that, aren't, that weren't originally intended by the author can be empowering, especially for queer literary analysis. However, it's when we start defending people and saying that they have freedom of speech, that, uh, you know, it can get murky. So actually, I know I said, let's talk about Harry Potter. I want to go ahead and just address Gina right now. Because she makes a freedom of speech claim, and um, hopefully the Americans in the chat know what I'm talking about when I say the Bill of Rights is Congress shall make no law, meaning it protects you from the government. So if the FBI was kicking down her door for her comments, right, she would have a valid freedom of speech argument. However, she has signed a contract with a private company. And aren't we capitalist, America? So the private company, as long as it's not discriminatory, can put anything in your contract. And Disney has a clause that you can embarrass the brand. And she embarrassed the brand. And that's just that. So she can legitimately be fired. So freedom of speech, no, I don't buy that. That's bullcrap. What she essentially did is she compared her situation of facing consequences for her disgusting opinions and comparing that to the plight of the Jews during the Holocaust. That is un inexcusable, absolutely inexcusable. Uh, and, you know, and it's, uh, I mean, I'm a goy, all right? I'm a Gentile, I'm not Jewish, but I am, I am currently engaged to a Jewish man. So I really feel this in my soul that, you know, there are people out there who lost family and there were people who were disabled and who were queer, who were killed just because of that during this time. So for her to compare herself to that is absolutely disgusting. It's insanely disgusting. And she doesn't deserve her own show. And I'm, you know, right? So this was the perfect time to do it. She, her spot on Mandalorian is done, but for them to have given her a new show and to go through with that after this, not just this, but her comments since last year and the year before that all come together and really show that she is not a good person and that she doesn't deserve to represent Lucasfilms or Disney. I mean, and look, Disney's problematic, especially when it comes to anti-Semitism. Don't get me started on that. But we're talking specifically about Gina here and that she really does shouldn't, right? There's this idea that, that she shouldn't be able to represent this, uh, this, you know, very important to a lot of geeks, um, Star Wars, right? She shouldn't be able to represent it. And so freedom of speech, I totally reject that claim. Um, this idea that Disney is being unfair to her because she's right wing. If you had someone who was left wing and saying, you know, we should kill Republican senators, they would also get fired. So I, I completely disagree with this idea that it's bias or that it is against her specifically. Yeah. And also, no, I totally agree with her getting fired, by the way, but just if right-wing people want to complain about uh, conservatives getting fired, maybe they should work 
uh, to improve work is right so you can't get fired as easily? Just just a suggestion. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. And she's already gotten a new job with Ben Shapiro. So yeah. Bye, of course she's gotten a job with him. Of course. Yeah. The guy who, who talked about how it <laughs> had a tirade against uh, WAP. Like saying that telling us what female sexuality should be isn't that so fun? Oh, I love it as a woman to be told, uh, you know what what is healthy for me in sexuality. That's that's we've we've been told that for generations, thousands of years. Uh, anyway, this is not about Ben Shapiro, but he's a terrible person. Um, <laughs> and um, a lot of people, including Ted Cruz, said, "Oh, she's a strong woman in." <laughs> dap uh, oh she's a strong woman in sci-fi we've had strong women and will continue to have strong women in sci-fi what about bobby from the expanse right we have in firefly we have plenty of strong women so i don't want to hear it that we're firing a strong female character because you know ted cruz made that point because she was a texan of course he had to tweet about it um and i don't think that's a valid point because there are plenty of especially women of color in fantasy who are just as strong and don't have these insanely problematic views um yes. so I'll leave that there, but I wanted to address the Gina Carano issue because it is in the news, and we picked this topic before this happened. Yeah. So it felt like uh, we were kind of, you know, feeling this coming, and it was nice to have it. Um, anyway, uh, so <laughs> so that's that on Gina, and I I'll leave it there because we're gonna we want to get into kind of the meat of this topic as far as actually looking at fiction. Um, so, Lo, where would you like to start? Um, maybe we should get the other topical topic uh, out of the way, too. Um, I the casting news about House of the Dragon. Let's do it. So they um they announced some casting news. Uh, I was very excited to see this, and um, they are having a man of color play uh, someone of Illyrian descent. God's forbid, low. Wow. Yeah. The PC warrior, social justice warriors are killing us, Lo. It's killing Hollywood. And we're all going to die. Yeah, absolutely terrible, uh, obviously. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Anna makes a good point about Joss Whedon. Joss is Whedon is also, also sucks. Yeah. And yeah, so, and we'll get into cancel culture as well. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, Lo, let's talk about this. Um, there, the House Valerion uh, is of Valerian descent. However, it is canon that they were not as protective of their eugenic bloodline uh, as the Targaryens. So I argue that it is could be totally canon that the Valerions um, are could could be people of color. And even if it wasn't canon, who cares? It depends on how talented actors are. If he can bring Corley's Valerion, the sea snake, to life. It doesn't matter. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, they're also uh, known for being a seafaring people. So to me, it makes total sense that they would maybe hook up with someone from the Summer Isles, uh, where people are canonically black. Um, and I know Alicia on Twitter has talked a lot about this. Uh, and I mean, it does not say anywhere that Corlys Valerian is a white person. 
Yeah. So why the heck does it matter? Some people argue that, oh, he can't be black because the Targs are Targaryens are white and they intermarry. But I mean, people obviously don't know how genetics works with mixed mixed race kids, and also it's a freaking fantasy world. So <laughs> yeah. obviously the genes are messed up anyway. Uh, yeah. We know that the genes don't really make that much sense if you look too closely at them in the books. Um, I mean, the seed is strong, sure, but like some stuff just doesn't make that much sense uh, if you look too closely. And it's a freaking fantasy book. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I think also, and House Valerian is actually my favorite minor house. So I was extremely excited to see them diversifying. Um, and, you know, and, and for specifically to pick the sea snake because he's so beloved in the fandom and he goes all over the world and um, there, I won't call names, but there's a specific person in the fandom who is very uh, influential and is actually responsible for starting a lot of the fandom uh, who will not shut the F up about this. And I want to cancel them a second time, but I've already canceled them <laughs> once. But there is this idea that oh, I'm not being racist. I'm just trying to keep it canon. And I just, I, I completely reject that altogether because if you really cared about the character coming to life, you would just want the, the person who can do that. You wouldn't care about looks, right? It's about embodying the, that person. And so I, you know, Twitter, when it was floated and Twitter now that it's confirmed is just Twitteros is blowing up with a bunch of racist bullshit and I'm tired of it because I we should be over so much of this and we're not we keep thinking oh yay diversity diversity apparently only if it says in the text this person is a person of color right we have in here's dark materials a character who is mixed race and it was never really said in the text if they were white or not but people still you know we're kind of like mm, that's a weird casting choice and then for the hot house of the dragon hot d if you will um there is a you know there's people are saying the quiet part out loud and you know at least they're showing their their themselves for us to see right um but wh why do you care so much i just i don't i don't understand that view and i think that it hurts the fa the fandom as a whole to be to be like this and you haven't even seen a pilot or anything you know, I just can't wait for the show to come out and for all of them to shut up because there were all of these things about the original casting for Game of Thrones that then turned out to be amazing and I never heard anything again. So I'm just really ex excited for that. And yeah, and Amy has a great point. Like, why even try to reason with racists, right? And that's kind of a part of, of cancel culture is that, and I hate using that term because it's usually used pejoratively, which is that... Um, it's not about going, oh, if they're older, oh, it was a different time, or oh, they just have a different opinion. No, it's social shame is all that works on some people. And so we have to use the tools that we're given. Yeah, and also I, uh, there's a really good passage in an article written about by one of my favorite uh, scholars, Sada Ahmed, uh, where she writes that you can't have a discussion with someone when one part of the discussion people uh, don't think the other part of the discussion are humans. Yeah. Uh, 
and she's specifically talking about trans people there but i obviously think that comes here you can't have like a civilized discussion with a group of people with races because they in the end don't think uh, all people are humans yeah like i i i couldn't i couldn't reason with one of my racist grandpas us and i eventually just stopped and i would just call him out and we'd fight and you know what could i do i couldn't talk with him about this seriously because he legitimately did not think that people of color were people so it's i also see it the same way kind of with um although it's not exactly the same with uh climate change if one side doesn't even recognize that it exists, we can't really have a discussion. That's this idea that both sides have valid points is not always true. And I think no. that's a really important point to make when we're talking about this. Just because there are two sides, that doesn't mean that one that they're both valid. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, so so that's that's the casting announcement on Hot D. <laughs> Sorry, I can't say it, the whole thing. Um, but let's let's talk about the the um, let's talk about the the main series then Game of Thrones and what are some themes that we see in Game of Thrones that are can be considered contemporary politics and issues um, that that we really see George playing with and I think one of them is this idea of power um, specifically uh, the attainment of power um, kind of the uh, suppression of the small folk the uh, idea of religion in power, right? He, um, there's, there's a lot going on there. And really the symbol of the Iron Throne represents power. It represents holding, um, you know, kind of ruling over all the seven kingdoms with, an, you know, uh, with legitimacy. Um, and so I think that, that this idea of what is power, who deserves to have power, what is abuse of power, is very much can be a contemporary discussion and issue because yeah, there's a monarchy and it takes place in a medieval time, but these, these discussions about kind of power are a little bit more, I hate to use the term enlightenment because it's kind of a little bit Eurocentric, but of the post enlightenment discussions, this is not really something that they were necessarily talking about in the medieval times. Yeah. And I mean, uh, just if you look at Iron Throne, for instance, uh, I remember a few weeks back when uh, the inauguration in the US was taking place. And for those who don't know, uh, I'm Swedish. So I watched uh, the whole thing on Swedish news. And it was extremely interesting uh, to hear the commentary uh, of that and the journalists being saying essentially, yeah, there's some official things happening here. You know, the Americans are very much about these specific ceremonies and specific uh, images and symbols. Uh, and I just kept coming back to things that are said in A Song of Ice and Fire about, uh, you know, you have to have this certain symbols and uh, uh, the thing that Melisandre says to Jon Snow that he, he doesn't prop himself up enough. Um, because he he doesn't uh, take the place in the king's tower or etc. And then you have uh, like who has the iron throne? It's a huge symbol of legit legitimacy. Uh, yeah. So I mean, we can definitely see these issues in our world too currently. And part of that also that um, was true 
in medieval times and is true in Game of Thrones that we are that is also a modern uh, and contemporary issue that we talk about is the the role that religion plays in power. So, right, it's the high septon that crowns the king, right? He ha- he has rules with the with the seven, right, as as uh, guiding him, right, or her, or they, uh, or them. Uh, and so, you also have religious extremism in in the series with Lancel uh, Lancel's character and the uh, the High Sparrow's uh, followers. You literally have this idea of how religious extremism can work its way within the power structures, and it's always the small folk that are hurt the most when that happens. So even though the small folk, uh, especially in the South, are mostly Faith of the Seven, they've mostly been proselytized in the Faith of the Seven, um, that doesn't mean that they're then not hurt by the hierarchy that does come with the faith of the seven, right? They always have this term that the, may the father, ju- you know, judge you. That kind of shows that, you know, that the small folk can't really judge the upper classes because that's up to the father, which is also common in Christianity saying, oh, well, only God can judge me whenever usually said when someone is not doing something well, uh, but has also been used by the queer community to say, how dare you judge us? Only God could judge us. So, Religion is something that can be used by all sorts of movements. And I think in specifically in um, Game of Thrones and in Song of Ice and Fire, religion plays a very important role, right? You also have relorism um, and you also have the old gods and how that's kind of uh, an aspect of beyond the wall and of the north that helps them kind of hold on to their identity, which identity, once again, huge thing in the in the series. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it's extremely interesting that you bring up this point about uh, only the father can judge you um, and not to enrage all of you good capitalist Americans too much but uh, it immediately when you said that reminded me of Marx and his idea uh, of how religion is used to make people um think that the current system is valid and legitimate and to think that oh well uh maybe maybe society sucks but if i work hard enough and live a good life then i'll get into heaven uh, and um, i mean it's it's there's more to that theory than that but essentially that different ideologies including religion works to uphold uphold the current power uh, power structures um and um i also uh just want to bring up uh oh that's a good point by joe yeah great yogi. great point by yogi who says another interesting thing in a song of ice and fire is the rise of domestic terrorism in response to imperialism in marine i think that george is directly making a parallel of when you go into another place and say i know what's better for you and of course there's many people have talked about the racial implications of her um of mostly in the show mostly people of color are Giscari, and then you have right the silver queen this white woman coming in and saying i know what's best and of course you're going to get the sons of the harpies uprising um just as we get in the middle east um people uprising against imperialism and so in in the form of what you know what we would call we you know call terrorism um and and so there is this idea of fighting back through kind of guerrilla warfare um, because the power 
is not there for the local people, right? So I think that the Miranese, uh, and I actually was on, speaking of Through the Moon Door, I was on Through the Moon Door talking about Orientalism in the series, and they are, the Miranese are very much an example of infantilization of the other uh, by Danny. And Danny is my favorite POV and favorite character because I get to talk about Orientalism and imperialism, colonialism with her idea, or with her storyline. You can obviously also make show how the children of the forest, right, are overtaken by the first men who are then overtaken by the Andals. So you have this constant kind of um, movement and this constant uh, idea of superiority that is going on in the series. Uh, and, and that's, uh, you know, people, they're literally pushed to the margins, right? The, the giants and the children of the forest. And then the, the first men are pushed to the margins of the north, right? They're isolated there. Uh, and all the werewoods in the south are cut down, right? And, you know, maybe if we go a thousand years in the future on Planetos, someone overtakes the Andal culture in Westeros, right? It's, it's constantly being rewritten and changed. Uh, and the victor gets to, you know, we have the maesters who are writing from very much from that Andal perspective. Yeah, and uh, speaking of the North, I remember listening to Girls Gone Canon and they made such an excellent point about what happens when Stannis and Melisandre gets up there and uh, try to help, in quotation marks, uh, the free folk by saying, oh, you can come south of the wall if you convert to our religion and give up your entire culture. Yeah. Which is of course extremely similar to how colonial uh, governments have worked in our world with forcing people to give up their religion and their culture um, and I think you could make a case that uh, the free folk are a sort of indigenous people even the, the children of the forest even more but uh, I think you could make uh, an argument like that that there are that the free folk, folk are an indigenous people that have been uh, forced into a very specific area uh, by those in power, uh, similarly to how indigenous peoples in our world have been constrained to certain areas. When yeah, and, Alicia, and, and Alicia Kingston has a great point that it's not that slavery shouldn't be overturned in Slavers Bay, it's that the way that it's done is very white savior. Um, and, you know, I think that talking about thinking how the author is reflected in the works, because George was a anti-Vietnam uh, War protester, right, that was an example of colonialism. That was an example of America going into Vietnam and saying, we need to save you from communism, right? Um, and this, this idea that they had about the domino effect, that if one Asian country falls, they're all the same, right? So all the rest of the Asian country, which I'm an Asian studies major, and let me tell you, no, they are not all the same. They are very different. And um, Vietnamese have, uh, especially in um, around the uh, 700, 800s, were experiencing Chinese colonialism and are, were very anti-Chinese anti and many continue to be today and have their own national identity. So no, they weren't just going to go, well, if the Chinese are doing it, let's do it. You know, they, they were, you know, they were interested in Marxist philosophy. It wasn't because they were also Asian, right. That they were just copying the Chinese. So there, there is the side. So George was specifically, you know, against this colonialist intervention. And then he's writing game of Thrones, right. He's writing storm of swords. And then, 
uh, you know, Clash of Kings, Storm of Swords. And then in the 2000s, we get another colonialist intervention within the form of um, the Iraq. I mean, I want to say war, but it's it's like invasion, really, by the American troops. So um, we really do have that. George is seeing these contemporary issues, and he is obviously writing them into his uh, his fictional world because these issues of colonialism are very much, um, you know, historically important. And, you know, and it wasn't, and it's even though, right, you could, I often hear, well, it's a midi, it's supposed to take times in medieval times, blah, 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 this and that. Um, you know, there were plenty of colonialism in medieval times as well. Uh, it's just not in the way that colonialist theory necessarily, you know, would, def would have defined it. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I mean, I've argued before that even if uh, A Song of Ice and Fire takes place in a medieval-ish time, a lot of the ideas presented in, in the books are not medieval at all. Um, I've talked uh, at length about that on your channel before, Amy, about gender, for instance, and how I, as a gender studies person, uh, definitely feel like the way gender is presented in the books it, or, it, that's uh, not medieval. That's definitely post 19th, 18th century, really. Um, and I, um, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've written about that loads. Uh, so I, um, while George is definitely interested in uh, the medieval times, he also uses this fantasy realm to look at contemporary issues, uh, I think. We have an interesting question from Amy, which is, uh, do you think the first men are portrayed as quote-unquote good because they adopted the indigenous beliefs of Westeros, or is this an accidental thing that George did? Um, I actually see it as in the series, because now we have we later have the Andal invasion in our current timeline in A Song of Ice and Fire, is Andal supremacy, that they, in my opinion at least, the first men were put in the indigenized, or pardon me, colonialized position, even though they were colonizers themselves only a couple of hundred years before. So I think if, if, if we didn't have the Andals there and we're going back however many, a thousand years, and we see the first men invading Westeros before they took on the, these indigenous beliefs, and even maybe after that too, because they were still pushing the children of the forest to the margins, then they would be the colonizer. But it kind of flipped back on them and they became the colonized, which is I actually think George is doing something here, which is that you might be the one on top today, but tomorrow, right? you're going to be the victim of the very same oppression that you put on others. That's kind of how I read it, Low, How about you? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, totally agree with that. Um, I just wanted to address uh, Yogi's question. Um, yes, of course. The chat. Um, uh, and Yogi asks, uh, Lo, do you think the way that the characters think about gender is not medieval or the way Gurm writes about it? Both. Um, and just like a quick uh, history lesson, um, before the 18th century in Europe, people uh, thought about, well, sex, not gender, but sex as uh, according to the one sex model, um, which is, is, that's a later term, but essentially it means that uh, they thought that there was only one sex, the male sex, uh, and women 
were just inferior, imperfect versions of the male sex. Um, Which can and, come from coming from Adam's rib, right? This idea that we're an extension. By yeah, I exactly. As a woman, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and uh, it was very much like Greek philosophy themed, so women didn't have the correct balance of the fluids and all of that uh, wonderful uh, stuff. So, according to according to my read of the books, I don't think that's how uh, the characters think about sex, and I don't think that's how uh, George has written about it. For instance, there are several. Uh, mentions of uh, characters uh, calling women the gentler sex, the weaker sex. And just that language to me indicates that people in A Song of Ice and Fire see it as being two separate sexes um, and not just one sex and an inferior version of that uh, in in perfect model of it. Um, So, yeah, that's the short brief version of it um yeah there's a there is a lot of interesting uh i uh, there's a lot of things in song of ice and fire and and themes which are not just for eighth grade book reports um they are actually the center of all literary analysis so they're just a little important to me as a literary scholar um but one thing i find interesting is his focus especially in aria's chapters on the small folk and we specifically get the Brotherhood Without Banners, who are believe that they are going to protect the small folk. And one thing I find interesting, low about the, the BWB um, is that they also kind of become corrupt. And I think this is George's kind of commentary on how even the even the most, uh, you know, uh, the, even the most pure of movements eventually kind of become... Uh, Oh, overtaken, or um, there's a certain word I'm looking for, and it's just not coming to my brain. Um, but they cor- uh, co-opted, co-opted, right? They eventually, right? You live long enough uh, to, you know, right? You you either die the hero, or you live long enough to see yourself the villain. And I think that the BWB really represent that. They had this really good idea about um, using the power of the king because at the time they got it from the hand of the king who at the time was Ned and they did get this, you know, they were using under the banner of the, the iron throne, they were going to better the riverlands and to stop the tyranny uh, that was ordered by Tywin. So you have these, these power structures kind of fighting and the, the brotherhood without banners are in the middle of it, just like the small folk. And they're trying to make a difference, but in the end they, they do become corrupted and, religion once again this rollorism starts to to seep into it to where it's um they're starting to think that they have the license to do whatever they want even terrible violent action yeah and if that is not um relevant today i don't know what is um (laughs) i was just talking the other day uh with a friend about um corporate feminism for instance and the way that um big capitalist um, corporations try to make money uh, of feminism uh, and how that's uh, obviously a corruption of the idea of feminism and feminist movement in a lot of ways. Um, 
Yeah, and Yogi said, poor Kathleen died a hero and still became a villain. Yeah, and then I like to follow up, give the, this lady a break. Yeah, but uh, this idea also of life and death, which is another huge theme for George, is also um, a question of, right, um, Thoris of Mir keeps bringing him back to life, and that's unnatural. I think it's very obvious in the in the series that this is unnatural, right? We have the others, we have Lady Stoneheart, we have um, Beric Dondarrion. I think the point is that just because you're you think you have a right cause and you're bringing someone back to keep fighting that cause, that doesn't make it right. Yeah, definitely. And you could obviously talk about I don't know bodily autonomy in that situation. I mean, in our world, you have to uh, sign up to be a donor after death. Uh, so is it ethical for to bring someone back from life if they have not stated that they would like that to happen? Yeah, yeah, where's the, know. maybe, you know, they needed DNRs back then. Yeah. <laughs> to say, let, let me die. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, also talking about this religious movement that thinks they're right. I really do think the High Sparrow is an ex excellent example of, frankly, a cult leader um, who is, who thinks that they, they have the answers and that they're fighting for the small folk, just like the Brotherhood Without Banners are, right? He wears this, this kind of humble, clothes and and he um you know professes to be fighting for the small folk but he is kind of he's using that power actually for a lot of um get ready to drink low a lot of patriarchal bullshit because the walk of shame is essentially uh, uh the control of female sexuality that is an extension of the high sparrows cult and also, that actually, Lo, I don't know if you know this, but in America, we do have this colloquial term, walk of shame, which means you sleep with a guy and the next morning you do the walk of shame. So I think that George is very aware of this gendered aspect of women should be ashamed of sex, um, whereas, you know, men uh, get a high five for, uh, for, for being... <laughs> You know, for for being you're right. You're I mean, I hate to use these terms, but you're a player if you're a guy, and you're a slut if you're a girl. And once again, I hate to yeah. use that term. It is a it is a patriarchal. Oh my god, again, term. <laughs> it's a misogynistic term. Uh, getting on to women for for having sex. Yeah, and I mean, uh, a while back, I wrote an essay about virginity norms in A Song of Ice and Fire because I have so many opinions about uh, the whole idea of there existing a maiden head that can mm, be broken. That's a great essay. Please check out, once again, I'm gonna put your, uh, I'm gonna put your link back up here. Your links, get it? <laughs> there you go, right? Uh, yeah, Lo has this amazing essay about the idea of maidenhood and the maidenhead and virginity in the series, which uh, which uh, they, really, <laughs> they really give it a one-two punch and knock it out as a concept. Yeah, background info for that. I also work, work with sexual education and have to quite often uh, explain to teenagers that no, the hymen does not exist. You don't always <laughs> bleed uh, the first time you have vaginal intercourse and you cannot, you cannot look at someone's vagina and tell if they have had sex before. Um, which they do seem to believe uh, in A Song of Ice and Fire. Yes. And just recently I read an article about how 
private clinics here in Sweden, in Stockholm, uh, would uh, do examinations of people to look if their hymen was broken or not, which is uh, like very unethical uh, to do yeah. that. So, and and this obsession with the genitals in general is, so, is such a heteronormative, misogynist, just disgusting way to look at the body and sexuality. Um, and it also, you know we're just now starting to talk about asexual people. The fact that some people don't want it at all should always be considered when we're talking about sexuality, which is not, yeah. uh, you know, which is a, a new, which a lot of people talk about the blackfish as gay. And I actually always bring up whenever that comes up, what if he's asexual? You know, there's always, there, there are some, you know, these people have existed forever. Yeah. Uh, it's just a question of terms. Um, and so I think another idea of power, right? Going back to that, another idea of it is George has compared the dragons to uh, to atom bomb, to the atom bomb, right? This idea of um, having this just, having something that the other side doesn't and using that as a threat against them, literal fire and blood, right? So this, they're also a representation of power that, and he literally compares it to to uh, dropping the bomb in World War II. And that is a contemporary issue of using, you know, um, what would be considered uh, advanced technology against uh, a foe that is not able to protect themselves against it. Um, and here we are, there's a picture showing people burning in the background, right? Not just using the dragons, but the threat of the dragons alone, really for George represents the using the threat of the bomb against people. Yeah, I mean, that was the whole Cold War, wasn't it? Uh, you know, being afraid that other side would decide to employ uh, the bomb. And um, to get back to the Poppy War uh, briefly, that's uh, also mentioned, They all, uh, the, the bomb is also alluded to in that book. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, chemical warfare is also used in the book as well. Yeah. So you do have this idea of um, using advanced weapons, and and it's specifically an extension of colonialist power, right? You know, America literally, you know, wiped clean two major Japanese cities, um, and that was considered victory. Yeah. Uh, so it it really George is obviously playing with this contemporary and modern ideas of weapons of mass destruction. And, you know, you can say chemical warfare or bio-warfare, right? Technically, the Mongols used that uh, with, they would send over people who had died of the plague in yeah. trebuchets to over the wall so that the they would just get everyone sick in the city and they would either leave or die. And then they could just enter the city. So these are technically medieval concepts, but brought, like, to a level that is, I mean, the dragons themselves is just a way higher level than you know, a flamethrower, <laughs> if you will, yeah. right? The amount of, of destruction they could do with, first of all, aerial power and then literal firepower is very much representative of dropping the bomb and creating devastation on the ground. Um, and so that that's very, very, uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's very much an example of how, um, how George is integrating these, what he saw in, you know, his uh, growing up and having, um, 
I, I, yeah, he would have had parents that were alive during World War II um, and kind of hearing this American rhetoric about victory through the, this weapon that now more countries have, not just America, but at the time it was supremacy. It represented supremacy. Um, so that, yeah, so that's the dragons as, you know, weapon is, is definitely an extension of power that, that George is playing with. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That is definitely the case. Um, and I think we got Silo in the chat now. We do, yes. Uh, Silo, so I Silo just wrote to... the book on medievalism <laughs> in A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, yes. And has a great, I think pretty early on in the book, has a great line about how, um, which we directly quote in our Laysan Omar essay, Low about how um, fantasy reflects contemporary woes. It, and I think that uh, she makes that argument very, uh, very well and clear in her book. Yeah, definitely. So you should all check that out. <laughs> yeah, literally wrote the book. We're not, we're not you know, using it as a, as a term. She literally wrote a book, Medievalism and Song of Ice and Fire by Shiloh Carroll. Pick it up at your bookstore uh, near you uh, or order online because Rona. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so there, I really like the way that she approaches it as she, I think, like us, doesn't take it as an axiom that it's a medieval time and therefore we should change the way that we look at it. Like this whole stream is about... <laughs> that we are incapable, me and Lo are incapable of doing that. Um, because yeah. we see it so clearly. We've gone over these themes of power, of gender, uh, and of, you know, ableism too. We could talk about Penny and Tyrion and how, and classism. Tyrion, right, had this great life even though he was born disabled, whereas Penny had to become an entertainer uh, and, and a joke in order to survive, right? So yeah. classism is also huge, uh, a huge theme of that which you know uh one thing i like about i love monty python holy grail but one thing i like about it is they have that <laughs> they have that one peasant who is like who is talking about uh you know marxist issues essentially in a medieval time right so even though i'm sure there were people at that time who were lower class being like i hate how the upper class get everything there wasn't this like kind of you know french revolution you know Marxist bourgeoisie versus the proletariat, right? But we can still look back at these times through that lens, and it fits every time. And I think George shows us through Song of Ice and Fire, uh, through the small folk and through the control of the people via um, religion and uh, idea of bloodlines, right? That and eugenics it's themselves, right? And that's a, a very obvious theme through the Targaryen bloodline. Um, that is all expressed through a quote-unquote medieval timeline, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I, as those who have read my essays know, I've uh, talked extensively about trans, trans issues uh, in the books. And uh, if we just go back to Arya and her, she has all these interactions with the small folk. And one of the scenes that really made me start thinking about um, her from this gender non-conforming perspective uh, was uh, when um, in class uh, she obviously dresses up as Ari, the boy, uh, and then gets discovered to be like biologically female uh, because she has to go pee in front of people. 
Uh, and that to me was just such a like trans moment uh, that so many people, including Jack Halberstam, for instance, have written about how. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure Brave Danny Flint at the Night's Watch. Exactly, exactly. Plug, plug. I have a future essay comparing her to Hua Mulan, as well as yeah. Alaris Sorella's. You know, Alaris probably has come across that same moment. Yeah, where you have to, yeah, risk getting discovered uh, when using a bathroom. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a million things to be said about the idea that your body uh, says anything about your gender, obviously. But just that safety situation that Arya is in in class is really uh, powerful to me. Uh, how she feels like she, have, she has to dress up as a boy to be more safe, not as yeah. at risk for sexual violence. But as any trans person or trans scholar could tell you, if you're discovered to you know, be in disguise then you're probably even more at risk for violence, Absolutely. including sexual violence. And this is something that you wrote about in the Lara slash Sorella essay that really, especially because, um, sorry, Lara says they're technically their chosen name, so I want to use the right one, but you also you write about how people assume to use he, him, and maybe they're non-binary. First of all, that was one of the great um, illuminations uh, from that, but also the idea of they're also a person of color. And so the the threat of sexual violence is even more uh, is even more there for sure. So I, I really enjoy that essay. So once again, plug check that out. Um, but there there was a great uh, line by Dorne yeah. Dame going back to this idea of the the bomb, and that was that um, there were some arguments at the time that oh we would kill fewer people by dropping these bombs and getting Japan to surrender than if we were to actually send troops in. Um, and that's kind of the argument, as, as Dornish Dame uh, makes this point, that's kind of the argument Tywin uses for the Red Wedding, right? If we kill a few at dinner, right, that's going, that would have been fewer people, I feel, I hear Stannis in my head, not less, fewer, <laughs> right? Fewer people than if uh, they were to do this, continue this War of the Five Kings, right? Um, and that, you know, in the end is, is uh, a really... I don't know how I would a pessimistic way to look at it. And it's also, I think, uh, trying to justify horrible acts of violence, um, especially in Westeros, where we have this idea of guest right being violated, which yeah, is another huge theme. Yeah, obviously. And also Tywin is full of crap because they didn't just kill a dozen at dinner. They also killed all the soldiers in the camps outside of the Dwins. Uh, so it was a huge uh, massacre. Uh, so he's he's just trying to, um, yeah, make himself feel better or look better or something. Yeah, just, um, it's it's this justification that you know uh, to me doesn't hold water. Um, and I think that that's exactly kind of what George is saying. Um, you know, they they also make the argument. There were a lot of arguments like that in Vietnam during the Vietnam War um, about if you know if we do this it kills fewer people and you know that this idea of um you know oh let's support the south vietnamese government and get them to you know uh sacrifice their troops because then it's fewer american troops if we support this government you know then we're looked at as more legitimate when it's still an invasion 
Uh, so I think that that is also this kind of regime change that that America and many colonial powers um, have engaged in over the years is something that is reflected in the in the series as well. And also something like we see in Marine, like we see in the North, is that uh, whatever culture was already there is still going to be there, right? Even the the uh, the children of the forest, you can't fully you can push them to the margins and you can almost push them to extinction, but there will always, you know, be, uh, be, that'll still always be there. Um, and so we, we really see that, uh, we see that a lot, uh, in, in real world examples. Uh, you know, I'm a Chinese studies major. So, you know, we see that with the, the Uyghur and the, uh, the Tibetan people, many different uh, marginalized peoples in, in China, they, they will be, um, you know, marginalized, but never fully gone. Um, you know, the, the Dalai Lama did escape to India and still uh, claims and does in many ways represent himself, uh, the, the, you know, the religious, um, uh, you know, the Tibetan Buzan specifically. So I think that that's also something that George is trying to say is that there, you know, the, this imperialist idea that people can, can be um, converted and changed is is you know they are, that is successful um, unfortunately but it will never be fully eradicated basically is what I'm saying. Yes, definitely, and that applies to so many contexts throughout the world. Yeah, and you also we will get into his dark materials here in a second, but you also write a lot about the Sami people um, and how the the many um, people in in Sweden think that you know, there's going to be the final nail in the coffin, right? Um, mm. uh, for these indigenous peoples. Um, you can say the same thing in Alaska with the, the Inuit people. Um, you know, they're still there. <laughs> and they're First Nations people in Canada. Um, so there's a lot of examples of this that push to the margins, but never gone. Uh, but unfortunately, downtrodden, definitely, and, and discriminated against. Yeah. Um, so did you want uh, any closing thoughts about uh, Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones until we get into uh, one of our other fiction um, uh, works that we want to talk about? I mean, not really. I feel like we've covered We so covered much. a lot, yeah. We used most, <laughs> I mean, most of those in the, I think everyone in the, in the chat we've met through the Song of Ice and Fire community. So we, we wanted to give the full hour, first, you know, hour to, to our um, this specific fiction work. And there's a lot going on. It's a huge series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's next, Slo? Do you want to go go into His Dark Materials? Uh, or Harry Potter? We could do Harry Potter first, maybe. Let's do because Jakey Rowling. <laughs> yes, because Rowling. We've got to <laughs> gotta get it here. Um, yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> Where do we start? Her uh, her campaign against uh, against quote unquote cancel culture and her idea that she should not face consequences for her terrible uh, discrimination against trans people and her representation of turfism um, is is has has caused many people, including myself and Lowe, to rethink their support of the franchise because it is a huge franchise. I mean, there's Harry Potter world. Uh, there's, you know, they've, I think they've announced that they're going to do a series. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are obviously the, the 
movies made her a lot of money. The books made her a lot of money. Um, so she has this, um, she had this, these, she keeps writing these essays against cancel culture and uh, w expressing her TERF uh, views. And for those of you that don't know, TERF is um, trans exclusive uh, radical feminism, which she claims to be a feminist who does not accept trans women into the movement, which uh, as Lo and I both talked about, um, not very feminist. <laughs> yeah. At yeah, all. and also she doesn't think that non-binary people exist, basically. Um, especially if they uh, were assigned female at birth, then they're just confused and has a lot of internalized misogyny, according to her, which is obviously not true. Uh, so, yeah, for me personally, I, I really, really loved Harry Potter growing up. Um, it was... Um, it was a huge part of my life. I met so many people through the online fandom uh, and it was just really a, a safe place for me in a way uh, growing up. Um, as you know, a queer nerd, I wasn't that popular in school. So Harry Potter was sort of a safe haven. And I mean, I even, uh, when I turned 18, I got a tattoo, a Harry Potter tattoo um, that I have since covered up uh because i just could not look at it without thinking about how much uh this woman would hate my very ex existence and um, invalidate it completely. yeah um yeah and and she also reflects some problematic views within the franchise or in within the work um you know, uh, there are a lot of things that we can uh, point to, but maybe we should start with the goblins. Um, this is not subtle. I'll just say that. There's For those of you listening in podcast form, I've just put up a uh, picture of one of the goblins literally hugging uh, coins and money. Uh, and with the big nose, uh, it's uh, very obviously... A representation of the Jewish people. I don't know if she has confirmed or denied this, but uh, honestly, I don't think it matters because no. the greediness and having a large nose is very obviously a dog whistle, and it's not subtle. It's more like a megaphone. Yeah, and also the long fingers. Um, yes, there's. Um, I know. I one of the Harry Potter podcasts. I do podcasts that I do listen to. The Quibbler. Uh, made a really good point about this uh, when they covered the last part of Deathly Hallows that uh, Grip Hook's fingers are constantly pointed out as being like long and claw-like pretty much. Uh, it's not subtle at all. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it is really it is really problematic and this this is something also that is discussed in about uh Tolkien his uh I think I believe it's I believe it's the the dwarves who are he has he we do have him uh Tolkien quoted as they represent the Jewish people <laughs> um and you know that was in the 30s <laughs> we're talking about the 2000s so, uh, you know, not to say, oh, it was, a, it's, it was a different time, so it's okay for Tolkien to do it. I'm just saying that Rowling should know better, uh, basically. And so it's just, it's really, 
it's 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 really uncomfortable to see that because then you you really have obvious anti-semitism in you know in the series and it's also literally turning them into what looks like monsters and they're unhelpful right to harry he has to like convince them to do things he has to kind of trick them into doing things they're seen as so so they're the protective of these vaults of money um and you know from a, a course that i took in undergrad uh, jews in medieval christendom it was because jews they there there was a thought by christians at the time that it was ungodly to be a money lender so they so the jews were made to be merchants of money lenders so it, it's not like some kind of natural thing about being jewish is you want to do this it was a cultural thing that they were they were essentially forced into this work because the christians wouldn't do it so it, it but people who are anti-semitic assume that uh jewish people are inherently greedy and so this is kind of perpetuating the stereotype with with the these um these uh, you know goblins at green gods basically did i say that right green gods it's been a while because like i said yeah. i don't uh i i, I haven't <laughs> i have not consumed any harry potter content in a long time yeah yeah no exactly and i mean um there's also this idea that you can't trust the the goblins which is obviously uh, extremely problematic if you consider how jewish coded uh, they are um so um yeah and i i just i just need to say that uh, rohan is in the chat and being freaking delightful uh, i don't know if we should pull up the quotes but just uh uh, I love you, Ron. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, long fingers, maybe they're lesbians too. Yeah. Representation, <laughs> yes. Um, um, yeah, but I, you know, it's, I don't, you can say that, oh, kids wouldn't pick up on this, but I, I think that kids understand more than we give them credit for. And I, I always say that when, when it comes up to, oh, kids won't pick up on this or that. I really, I, I think that we don't give kids enough credit for what they will understand and what they will pick up on. Um, and even subconsciously, it'll, it's, it'll like start that reference uh, in their head uh, and they'll start a, the association process. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I also think... Um, we, you also mentioned that you wanted to talk about um, Cho Chang or Cho Chong. I'm going to say it in the, well, I, here's the thing. I'm sorry. I just, I'll say it right now. I'm an Asian studies major. Cho is a Korean first name. Chong is a Chinese last name. Is she mixed or does JK Rowling just not do any research? And she's just like, these are Asian sounding things. Yay. I have a person of color in my series. I mean, what is happening? If if she was going for full Korean, her last name should be J A N G, Jong. I'm just saying. I'm sorry. This like a yeah. it's it as an Asian studies major just irks me so much. Yeah, uh, I just uh, it's ridiculous. Um, she did not do research. Uh, I would say. Yeah. 
Everyone's like, yeah, no zero research. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think that I just think that she um, she represents Cho represents a half-assed attempt, basically, at yeah. at representation. Um, and and she also, um, you know, chose an Asian woman, and and it's very it's historically known that that um, white people will kind of, you know, see the stereotypes of Asians as smart and basically almost white. Um, before World War II, a lot of white people actually basically said the Japanese people were almost white. I mean, it's, it's, they, it wasn't until World War II that they were, oh, well, there's different race, right? There were actually Japanese people who migrated to America before World War II that checked white on their immigration form. Um, so, you know, um, as as far as like a dark person, um, you know, that's not really there. Yeah, and also, I mean, most of her role is to be a love interest for Harry, which also feels like a very stereotypical role for an Eastern Asian woman to be placed in. Very much eroticized, yeah, yeah which is a part of Orientalism. Uh, definitely. So we have, so yeah, so we have Cho, who's obviously there. Um, you wanted to also talk about Umbridge and, and, and Rita Skeeter. What, uh, what, yes. what were you thinking about that? G give us your feels and your thoughts. Okay. So my hot take about women and girls in Harry Potter uh, is that they're either wonder, they're either mothers in a good way or in a bad way. I mean, we have Lily and we have Petunia, obviously. But they're either mothers or like motherly, like McGonagall, or they're like silly young girls. Think like Parvati, yeah. show to a certain degree, uh, Lavender. Or they're like bad, feminine, but in a bad way, in a wrong way. Uh, and that's both Umbridge and Skeeter, to me, uh, fits that latter part. So I actually wrote an essay about this a while back. Um, but if if you look at how uh, they're described, it's very much that they're very feminine. Like Umbridge is always wearing pink. In the in the books, it's described that she has a girlish voice, uh, but she's also like it's very clear from the books and the dialogue um, that the all the characters think she's somehow presenting feminine in a wrong way. It's like, it's too girly and it's very much to me connected to her age that is like not appropriate for her to be this girly as an somewhat older woman. Um, and if you look at that from a sort of queer studies perspective, you could definitely see that as a sort of queer femininity uh, in a way that it's like seen as inappropriate. Um, and um, just to name drop a wonderful scholar who's written a lot about this, Ulrika Dahl, uh, she's a Swedish professor in uh, uh, social anthropology uh, and uh, also a wonderful human being that I have met several times. Um, and she writes a lot about queer femininity and femme and uh, the sort of subversion of gendered expectations by being like an older woman uh, 
who dresses femme and femme and like trashy in some ways and like what types of feminine presentations are deemed as wrong um and i feel like both umbridge and skeeter present are this type of wrong queer femininity in some way uh in that day uh Skeeter is always described as wearing like super long nails and lots of jewelry and all again it's portrayed as very wrong in some ways there's something that's not like respectable and proper about it and I think that's very much connected to yeah their gender presentation and their age and uh, that they somehow don't fit into this liner path you're supposed to uh, travel through life you can be girly when you're younger but when you start getting up there you're supposed to be you're supposed to change your appearance to be more respectable and these women don't do that and in that way they're not proper and they're in a way almost queer coded uh in that way and obviously there's a long tradition in both in books and in movies um uh and uh, that you know the bad guys are queer coded as a way to express that they're the bad guys uh because being queer is obviously bad um i also think but, that rita skeeter represents this kind of obsession with gossip and scandal which is very yeah. much a um sexist trope of women and she's manipulative right she uh she'll always write the headline to make harry look as bad as she possibly can she's always on the sidelines listening in you know trying to spin the story in a certain way uh th this is very much a, a a harmful trope about women that you can't trust them because they're always looking for a way to spin it uh in a bad way and i think also particularly her obsession with harry potter uh, is a little creepy as well <laughs> i'll just i'll just put that out there <laughs> yeah yeah definitely uh, definitely agree. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, Rohan asked about Fleur in the chat. Um, yeah, let me find that question. Uh, she's asking kind of where Fleur, or Fleur um, I'm bad at anything French, uh, where she kind of fits into this co this commentary, the line of thought that we're doing low. Um, mm. She says, you know, she's kind of feminine and has this idealized beauty, but then she's also kind of framed as a cool girl as well. Yeah, I think that in a way, um, yeah, I also, like, Fleur, she's, she's sort of the ice queen, at least in the beginning of the fourth book, I feel like. She's like the popular girl uh, that the guy thinks is hot, but uh you know she's not you can't really approach her um and hermione definitely doesn't like her uh and i feel like that's a contrast to hermione who's definitely like one of the guys she's that type of stereotype that she's not girly and that's a good thing uh, and she doesn't like Fleur because she's too girly um and then but then Fleur is actually a cool person it turns out you learn in the sixth book that she's not just focused on looks and i feel like in the beginning you don't you're not supposed to like her because she's so like focused on her looks and appearances or so it seems um 
and then you realize that oh she's not only interested in that so then she's a cool person um uh, and um i feel like with Ginny, for instance she's also more one of the guys she like she's a huge quidditch fan uh so girls can be cool if they're not too girly and not too interested in their looks i feel like that's um sort of uh, uh the yeah the the message i think she's also a little bit as exoticized as well um yeah as being a french beauty femme fatale kind of thing going on and and uh, reflective reading has a good point that hermione is the smart girl right and she has to kind of especially in i believe in the fourth book kind of literally do like the 1980s uh rom-com thing where you like take off the glasses and put on some makeup and put your hair down and you're beautiful all and feminine all of a sudden so very much jk rowling is definitely playing with this uh you know this this trope that is um i think also harmful to women it, it puts it puts uh good looks ahead of intellectual uh, you know uh prowess basically yeah. Um, so that, yeah, we see a lot of problematic gender things and the fact that um, Rowling does believe there are only two sexes and two genders and that they're the same thing, also very problematic. Um, so uh, I, re I, I wish, I'm sure there are some fanfics out there that have, that insert trans characters or something in oh, Harry yeah. Potter and that would have been nice to see um, because wizards and, and just wizards and witches yeah, they're yeah. doing the That's same thing. Annoying. They both use magic. Why can't we yeah. all be wizards, or why can't we all be witches, or why can't we just all be magicians? Right? Just try and pick a term that, like, what what is the difference between what Hermione does and what Harry does? Well, the, the fact that he's got the scar and all that stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right? They're both magic users. The fact that we have two separate terms alone shows that she is very much thinking in the binary and something that low. Nessie and I talked about on um, Nessie's channel, The Unspun Yarn. Please check that out. Um, we were talking about how the binary it, is ingrained into people's thinking and very much it's ingrained into the Harry Potter world. Yeah, I mean, it's constantly gendered. You have the girls' dormitory and the boys' dormitory. And I know a lot of trans folk have been talking about, well, where would a trans person or a non-binary person fit in? Um, and I mean, obviously that's true to our world too. Uh, look at all the gendered places, the bathrooms, the changing rooms. Yeah, um, and there's also something that I've been kind of inserting in the chat while we've been talking is we can support so many other female authors who like Ursula K. Le Guin, um, yeah. who has an amazing uh, uh, um, fantasy series called Ursula series from the 70s or 60s, I believe, maybe 70s. And, you know, there are um, women of color who are writing amazing uh, fantasy and sci-fi. And there is, there is, there are so many people that we can be supporting instead of this. And also, J I believe J.K. Rowling made it mainstream, not just because of the quality of her stories, but also because she is a cis white woman. And yeah. it made it very easy to get noticed. And, you know, she was, she was uh, obviously poor in the beginning and then became really rich. But it's very uncommon for 
trans people and people of color to have that kind of quote unquote rags to riches story that yeah. uh, that JK experienced and enjoyed. So yeah. I think we also need to recognize how the society and how the audience itself is very receptive to this kind of story that is, uh, even though it's in, that's the thing is it's a world where magic exists, but we can't have a trans person. That makes no sense. Yeah. You know, it's, it's supposed to not be our world. And yet she imposes all of the, her terrible real world takes on this, on this world. Yeah. And uh, reflecting rambling has another good point um, that I agree with uh, that, uh, tongues uh, can definitely be read as non-binary. Uh, I personally read tongues as non-binary, um, but uh, again, that's that's a queer reading that I do that was definitely not intended by the author. Exactly, and that's where death of the author can be empowering and beneficial to marginalized people, which yeah. we we kind of referenced at the beginning. Here is an actual example of that. Um, where it can actually be a good thing. But it's, I think that, at least for Milo, and since you got a tattoo, I think you feel the same way, uh, saying these things are because we originally really cared for the material itself. Yeah. And if we didn't care about it, and it wasn't important to pop to popular culture and society, then there wouldn't be much to say about it. But because it has affected, you know, generations, mm. it is important to realize and recognize when it falls short and when the author um, is harmful because she does have a big platform. Yeah. And she does make a difference to a lot of people, what she says. And there are a lot of people out there who hold these bigoted views of trans people and feel validated because someone like JK Rowling said it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've seen politicians quoting and referencing her. So, and people uh, who don't even agree with her, but say she's right about cancel culture, right? Yeah. Like, oh, forget the anti-transness. She's right that people shouldn't be, shouldn't face the consequences of their of their bigotry, and that that is also disgusting. That yeah. people kind of pick and choose what she's saying, and then use that to elevate their own views. Yeah. You know, so that that's if she was just some Joe schmo, it wouldn't matter. But she has you know, millennials and Gen Z specifically, she has affected the way that we look at fantasy. You know, whenever I'm reading the Poppy War and Reen goes to this training school, I think of yeah. Hogwarts. How can I not? So, and there are a lot of, fit. you know, we look, I look at <laughs> how Reen treats Naja and I'm like, oh, that's Harry versus Draco. <laughs> so, yeah, these tropes are there and sh and we have names to them you know, for her, and just like with Tolkien, right, you talk about the journey and going to Bordor, you know, so a lot of times when we talk about A Song of Ice and Fire, we say, oh, that's like in Tolkien's blah, 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 right? She's, she set some tropes, and because of that, she, uh, you know, she is influential, and she does have a platform, and that platform can be taken away if we set aside our own attachment to something just because we like it, just because you like it doesn't mean that what she's saying is not hurtful to people like Lo and people like me, um, yeah. you know? And, and I think that that's, and not to mention people of color. I mean, the lack of, of, you know, you know, 
children of all colors want to be a wizard. <laughs> what, you know, yeah. why is, why, but they don't see themselves at Hogwarts. And I think that's, that is, the, the pain is real. And saying, well, I like Harry Potter, so it doesn't matter, is really invalidating to people. And yeah. I think that's what we're trying to say when, specifically when it comes to Harry Potter is just because you like it. You know, I, like I said, anyone who's told me that they can get over the Harry Potter thing, they were always cis white. Mm. I, you know, that's that. I've never, you know, I've talked to plenty of people of color and queer people about this and we're, we're of the same mind about it. So, you know, I think that to me, that says something. Yeah, and I feel even when I've talked to like queer people or people of color who say, well, I still love the books, everyone is always super clear that even if the books will always have a place in our hearts, we cannot with a good conscience support her uh, monetarily. Um, yeah. So, uh, that I feel like is, even if the books always have uh, some place in your life, uh, it's ethically irresponsible to give her more money or more exposure. And people talk about cancer culture, boycott culture has been here since the 1500s, right? Yeah. During the early 1900s, ja a lot of Chinese people were boycotting Japanese goods because of their aggression against Korea. Um, a lot during World War II, a lot of there was this Buy American campaign. Unfortunately, it is usually infused with nationalism. I will make that caveat. However, this idea of boycotting something because it does not match your views has been around for a very long time. So, so to act like all of a sudden these liberal snowflakes are having cancel culture mm. is historically inaccurate. Um, you know, the boycotting products has been here for a very long time. So you know, there were people that were boycotting opium coming out of India because they were against British imperialism. I mean, it's it's always been there. And so I think to all of a sudden act like this is this is something that needs to be uh, done away with. I, I, you know, we've we our wallet reflects our values for a lot of people in this world. Yeah. And I think that also, you know, just for example, Chick-fil-A. I haven't been to a Chick-fil-A in 10 years, and I won't because the, yeah. the hiring practices. They say they're better now. I don't give a crap. That was what they originally represented to me, and I don't eat chicken anyway, so it's really not much of a loss. I did like the waffle fries. But anyway, <laughs> um, so, that, so that is this idea of, of boycotting is, is just uh, – cancel culture is just an extension of that, and I don't use cancel culture in a pejorative way because I – uh, I, I boycott a lot of things. I haven't been to a Walmart in over 10 years either. Yeah. I find other things. <laughs> There's always, uh, there are always small businesses you can support that are not terrible. So, you know, for me, canceling Harry Potter was difficult, but I think that I, as long as I have a clear conscience, I will be happy. Mm. And that's at the end of the day, I need to be able to fall asleep and think that at least me as a small person, right, there's just one person, is at least, at least my conscience is clear. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so uh, last thoughts on Harry Potter, Lo? Um, I just want to bring up one thing really quickly and then we can move on. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, 
Jake Rowling is also somewhat like infamous for inserting diversity after the fact. Um, for instance, saying Dumbledore is queer um, or saying that uh, being a werewolf is a metaphor for having HIV and AIDS. Um, and I just want to talk a bit about that. Um, yes, definitely. Because... And you said uh, that Rowling herself has mentioned this, so you're not bringing this out of thin air, right? No, she has said that, uh, that she sees this uh, uh, condition that is stigmatized as uh, a parallel to HIV-AIDS. And um, that starts to break down quite quickly. Well, not break down, but starts being very problematic quite quickly if you look closely at it. Um, because obviously Lupin, we like Lupin. He's a good guy and he gets discriminated for being a werewolf. But um, um, like there's... Uh, there's also the evil werewolves, for instance, uh, Fenrir Greyback, who bit Lupin, who he has the, he used to have the practice of deliberately uh, biting kids uh, who were enemies to Voldemort. Uh, and that is obviously um, super problematic if you see that as a parallel to HIV. Uh, and he's also very much described as a sexual predator who often goes after uh, kids, including both boys and girls and everyone in between. Um, and if you then see um, if you then see HIV as being a werewolf, then then you immediately get into extremely extremely problematic views about like people deliberately spreading HIV and people having it being like perverts in some way, um, which is just terrible. Yeah. And I think obviously the association um, between, uh, between um, being gay and contracting AIDS, uh, I don't know about now, but uh, certainly in the 80s, the colloquial term uh, in China was Tongxingbing, literally gay disease for AIDS. Mm. So globally, unfortunately, it has in the 80s, it was associated with the LGBTQIA plus community. Exactly. Um, and so to make that comparison is just churns my stomach and I was today years old when I heard about it this is my first you know before we started the stream low you told me that you wanted to talk about this and I was disgusted so this is I'm still this is still raw for me I haven't had the yeah. chance to process this um it's the more it, the more you learn about something the more you're going to see its flaws absolutely mm. but the amount and the 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 severity of the flaws that I'm starting to see in Harry Potter is alarming. And I think is something that it's, uh, yeah, Amy has a great point. She just keeps digging the hole. Yeah. I mean, if you find yourself in a six feet, six foot hole, stop digging. I don't understand. Like she just, she's, she's going to be at the earth's core pretty soon. She just keeps digging. And I, I don't understand why she can't just let these things go. And I think it comes from privilege. Yeah. Uh, she thinks that she, in its power dynamic, she thinks as a, white woman in England, she can speak on these issues. 
Yeah. And she can't, I, she can't like you, you're either an ally or you shut up. That's just kind of how I am about this kind of thing. Mm. Um, your ideas are wrong and you should go away. <laughs> That's like the, basically the TLDR of how I feel about it. I just, I don't understand why she still has a platform and why people still listen, you know, and yeah. why people still defend her because you can, you can still have great memories about reading the books and seeing the movies, but be realistic about who she is as a person and how it affects the literature itself. It's not, it's not like she has this great, you know, she's created a world that is without these views. Like I said, just the witch and wizard binary alone shows that that's seeped into her literal magical world <laughs> that should yeah. be boundless possibilities. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm I'm done. My feels are all out low about this yeah. about Harry Potter. So uh let's go ahead and talk about his dark materials and those in the chat that haven't seen it. Um, you know, these aren't gonna be it's not gonna be terribly spoilery, I don't think. Uh we're mostly no. gonna be talking about themes. Um and so just sit back and relax. If you haven't heard about his dark materials, we're at least gonna talk a little bit about how religion and power uh and other contemporary issues play in this in the series and Lo and I have both read the books and seen the first two seasons of the show um yeah. so let's maybe talk about the magisterium first mm. as it's a it is a political and religious power that it controls the main world in the series uh Lyra's world uh is the main character so specifically her world and Lo something that you talked about in the episode that you and I did together about uh colonialism and his dark materials you talked a lot about Nazi parallels and this, this also this idea of um, specifically, are you ready for it? Patriarchal control that the magisterium represents. Um, and Philip Pullman, the author himself, uh, likes specifically says that he likes to write about um, church and state and how integrated they can be and, and kind of write against those issues. Yeah. So, I mean, the Magisterium is quite obviously uh, a parallel to uh, Christianity in our world, even if in this uh, parallel universe they have a, a an even stronger hold on society than they do in our world. Um, and there are definitely uh, uh, parallels to eugenics and uh, the Nazis and similar things. I mean, in the picture you showed just uh, just recently, um, that's from the second season of the show. They have made the Magisterium symbol, uh, this cross thing, look extremely similar to the Air Force symbol uh, of the Nazis during World War Two that crosses if if you google it it's extremely similar and also uh, i've talked about before how on the show uh, they seem to very deliberately um yeah parallel the um, the costumes uh, of the of the medicine yes, soldiers have these armbands yeah yeah exactly which... And, uh, which um, could also represent, um, I don't know how much Pullman knows about China, could also represent the Red Guards during the Cultural Revolution from the 60s and 70s in China, where they were constantly um, trying to suppress and f even force um, people to suicide for not supporting 
um, the the uh, the Communist Party of China. Yeah. So and this there's... kind of idea of authority, and usually male authority as well. Yeah, usually male authority, and um, uh, not not to be too spoilery um, because I know all of the people listening and watching haven't read the books, but um, surprise, surprise, this religious organization very much wants to control sexuality and especially women's sexuality and sexuality of minority groups and marginalized communities. Um, It's, a bit implicit at times, but not not very implicit. <laughs> it's yeah. quite obvious uh, once you start thinking about it that yes. uh, that's what they are up to. One of those examples are the witches, Lo, which you wanted to talk about, where they um, their lifestyle is uh, condemned by the magisterium. They are seen as not good mothers, which you know, for in in misogynist view, is the worst sin that a woman can commit. Um, so they're very much a matriarchal society, and um, they are, you know, constantly at odds with the magisterium because they they do represent this kind of feminine force that is fighting against the the masculine religious um, authority, and they also uh, are kind of the boss in their relationships too, if you will, which is condemned. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a lot there about how uh, the witches, or at least some of a lot of the witches, dislike the magisterium because just because of their control of sexuality, um, and how the magisterium distrusts the witches, which I mean they obviously did in our world too. Uh, just look at all the burnings. Yeah. Um, but something that. I think it's very interesting about the witches uh, is that um, they have a lot of parallels to people who live in Scandinavia and the north of Europe um, that is probably not as uh, obvious if you're not from that area. Um, And because I know I've uh, annoyed annoyed quite a few podcasts by emailing them and saying, hey, look at this thing. Maybe you should talk about this thing Um, when it comes to the books. um, That's actually how I first started talking to Chloe and Eliana of Girls Gone Canon. Um, Because in in the books, and I'm not sure if this is mentioned in the show actually, but in the books, uh, they say that the witches come live in a part of the north that they refer to as L land, uh, and I, I on principle uh, do not say that word, but um, it starts with an L and then there's land. Uh, and uh, the reason I don't say that word is because uh, the first part of it, the L word. Uh, is a slur for Sami people. And Sami people um, are the people uh, who are indigenous to Sweden, Norway, Finland, and Russia. If you actually look at a map of Sweden and how, what part of the contemporary country that used to be uh, some, uh, inhabited by Sami people, the part that is Sápmi, their land, it's actually quite literally half the country. 
the the border, so to speak, is quite literally at half the country. Um, but then Sweden colonized uh, Sápmi, uh, and so uh, some of you have probably heard about this ter term for the geographical area that uh, that shall not be named. Um, that that is an actual area in northern Sweden and Finland, uh, often said to be where Santa lives. Uh, because, of course, it's been turned into a tourist attraction, uh, ignoring the legacy and the heritage, cultural heritage of indigenous peoples living there. Um, uh, so, of it, it's, I mean, it means Sami land, but with a slur instead of Sami. Uh, so that was sort of the first clue that I went, okay, so the witches live in Sápmi, essentially. That's interesting. And then the second thing that made me think was, okay, they, they mentioned one god of the witches' religion, and that is Yambeaka. And Yambeaka is also uh, a figure in Sami religion. Uh, that's interesting. And then one of the places that we hear that the witches live is Lake Inara, which is in our world Inarejärvi uh, in Finnish, or in Swedish, uh, and that is an area that has been extremely important to the uh, Inarisami uh, people who live in that area. Uh, there are several holy sites there, for instance, at this lake. Uh, so I'm used. Pullman obviously has been inspired by real world indigenous people when uh, creating the witches. And um, yeah, it's very interesting that they're in conflict with the church because the church yeah. of our world has done its very best to erase their culture and religion uh, throughout history. Absolutely, and the uh, we've talked about this before on my channel, Lo, but the American version of that would be the Christian schools that were set up in America for natives who they weren't allowed to speak their own language and they were reading from the Bible and there was this idea of um, kind of assimilating them which is um, you know I use that in a very the ne most negative connotation possible um, of assimilation is is the opposite of acceptance um, and of of you know allowing other cultures to thrive. Um, so the witches very much represent that, not just gendered, but also they really represent that, uh, this kind of idea of uh, a culture that is, that's the main uh, misogynistic religious authority finds to be uh, a threat and therefore lashes out violently. And what's interesting is if we want to continue on this, this thought of gender well, I know you and I both have a lot of feels about Marissa Coulter, um, who is works within this misogynistic uh, and, you know, religiously intolerant uh, power structure in order to gain power for herself. And uh, a lot of people get hurt along the way, including children, especially children. Yeah, and I think what makes... Marisa Coulter is such an interesting character is that you do sympathize for part of her struggle because 
she's a woman in a patriarchal society and that, <laughs> yeah and that patriarchal um society will not let her strive and uh, live her life as she would like to but her solution to that is not to bring down the patriarchy and uplift the white supremacist hetero patriarchy that and she she doesn't try to like uplift other women or marginalized peoples uh instead she's like okay i'm personally going to get to the top mm-hmm. and it does mm-hmm. not matter how many dead people i have to climb to get to that top um and that is unfortunately uh, very similar to a lot of how a lot of white women in the world have uh, gone about similar issues. Um, her internalized misogyny also reminds me of Cersei. If Rohan's still in the chat, I'm sure she'll chime in. Oh, there she is, Rohan. <laughs> um, there is also this um, this kind of idea of I'm a special woman. I'm one in ten thousand. I deserve power. I'm I'm not like other girls, which is a very very internalized misogyny kind of view on um on you know being a woman who wants power right there's this idea of she also uses her feminine wiles um uh marissa coulter and cersei lannister do both <laughs> um to to kind of uh gather power in the way that uh that they can and so there is kind of this assumption that they will have to work within power within this trappings of power within the system in order to gain some of the power but rather than trying to make it better for all people including and especially women and girls um and i think her her daughter then um represents kind of wanting to change things rather than working within them exactly i won't say who her daughter is because it's a little bit of a reveal so i'll I'll leave it there (laughs) um about about that but i do think that um that Marissa Coulter does does represent that that kind of misogynistic view of power that it comes from men and you trick you manipulate men into giving some of it to you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, it's that's a very very interesting uh, thing to analyze, and I'll have to write more about her. Um, uh, in um, at some point, um, and uh, I have written about her a bit in my uh, colonialism in historic materials essay, um, which is very spoiler heavy though. So if yes. you haven't, um, if you're not caught up, don't read it. But uh, I talk a lot there about her as a yeah white woman, uh, colonial woman. Uh, who is not does not see any problems with uh, stepping on the backs of uh, dead children to get to the top and pulling up the ladder after she's climbed it. Yeah, uh, and she's also very contrasted with Mary Malone, who Lo and I are going to write an essay about, and I also have an upcoming essay about uh, Marissa Coulter's. Uh, demon being a monkey because I am mm. obsessed with monkey imagery. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. My first ever essay was a, was about monkey imagery and Tyrion Lannister. Um, yeah. It's kind of ironic that I 
<laughs> one of my first essays was about a, a character who I currently dislike quite a bit, but originally really liked Tyrion. Um, but this, I, this, the monkey imagery is also very interesting to me and the idea of grasping at power. The monkey is known to grasp um, for for immortality in Chinese culture and for wisdom and for, for power as well. And Tyrion is is also described as a grasping monkey in the in the series. So plug once again to check out my first ever um, essay. But so Marissa Coulter is is an interesting kind of commentary on power, but so is Azriel. Um, yes. he is trying to find his own powers and go up against the magisterium. Yeah, and um, I mean, I see, I see Astral as a white man who's a re revolutionary. Uh, in that, his goals are good, I suppose, but he's not considering the fallout of his actions. Um, for more marginalized people um and uh <laughs> and uh, uh not to spoil too much but uh, um a phrase i repeated uh several times when i did my uh my breakdowns of uh the episodes in season two of historic materials was uh astral man-made climate change yeah. Um, just to subtly put that down on the table. Um, <laughs> and obviously, when it comes to climate change, uh, both in historic materials and in our world, you can discuss uh, what people are mo mo the most impacted by that. And that's generally marginalized communities, especially indigenous communities, uh, which I would argue is the case in historic materials. And people that are making the money off of it, like with big oil, um, tend to be white men. Yep. And those white women that have a lot, have made it and don't want other women to make it as well. <laughs> um, sorry, I, I got a, a text a, a, a text question actually for us. Um, actually, I'll go ahead and address it now. Um, do you have a, do we have recommendations for good queer fantasy? actually is a interesting question oh since we're since we're being like bad 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 can we be like good <laughs> um i mean it's more more young adult i guess but i would say the magnus chase uh novels by rick riordan is the same person who wrote the percy Jackson books uh they also have good queer representation uh but more in the later books um, but Magnus Chase and the Gods of Asgard is a series along the same lines. Uh, basically, the Norse gods exist in our contem contemporary uh, world. Uh, they're up to shenanigans. Um, and um, in the second and third book, one of the main characters is a gender-fluid uh, person uh, who is absolutely amazing and uh just great um and also one of the other main characters um is a hijabi uh, girl so and she's just awesome and a valkyrie 
and it's great. Um, I I recently got that first book for my uh, bonus niece uh, who turned 11 um, because I was like, you need some good influence in your life. So I'm just going to give you this fantasy <laughs> book and see what happens. Um, there was also something I read in middle school. Uh, the first book is called Hawk Song, and you can probably find the rest of the series through that. But I believe the third book, I want to say it's the third book. It might be the second book. Um, the main character um, is lesbian and meets another woman and it's quite a beautiful love story that is, is probably one of the best representations that I've seen in fantasy. So if you search Hawk Song, you'll find that series. Um, that It's been a long time since I've read it, but it was pretty revolutionary for the early 2000s um, to be having a queer character at all, much less to make it a main character. We usually see queer characters and trans characters as the, as the comic relief in series, yeah. um, especially sitcoms. But, yeah. uh, but, you know, specifically fiction as well. We also see them as uh, minor characters, which I know Micah uh, is, loves minor characters and says that they're just as important. Um, but, you know, uh, to have a major character is, uh, is very important. Yes. And, and we've then also got a recommendation from Margot, um, who, with the caveat that they have not read it, but that they have heard about... Um, Pri is that Priory? I can never say that. Pri Priory yeah. of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. Uh, and so cool. they're hoping to get uh, to get to that, read that. But that's also um, another recommendation we've got. So, um, and um, The Magicians, I've seen the show. I have not read yeah. the books. I'm trying to think. I must be missing something, but I'm sure there is something um, queer in there. Um, oh, so Erin has read Priory of the Orange Tree and says that she loved it. So you've got Anna that. Anna also said Dreadnought. Um, oh. Apparently the main character is trans. Great. So that's cool. I'm just adding <laughs> things to my to, yeah, to right? read so list. Go back and watch this and write down all of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, so you know, it's nice to have some positive recommendations um, so that we're not just, don't just kind of throw up our hands and say, well, you know, everything sucks. <laughs> yeah. And also I just want to give a uh, uh, shout out to all the fan fiction writers out there because um, some sometimes people look down upon uh, fan fictions, but it, it's a legit creative outpouring uh, of made up people and of obviously a way to um, um, yeah to to find the representation that you don't always find otherwhere other in other places um, so I know that uh, Alicia and Rohan talked about their fix in the chat um, so plug plug, plug. <laughs> yes yeah, yeah rohan and alicia both um write um fan fiction and we also have another recommendation from aaron um she talks about jacqueline carey to me all the time and apparently a starless by jacqueline carey is another um option so i do think that supporting queer authors or authors that are having queer characters and also uh, authors of color I think that's a more productive way to look at this issue, these issues that we're talking about in the stream, which is to to support people that deserve your support, um, you know, 
and rather than, uh, you know, I, I hate to use this term because I know, especially, you know, people that are going to watch or listen to this later, uh, do separate, you know, separate these things. And I, I do think it is, I'm sorry, I'll say it now. You can, whatever, I, uh, you can cancel me, but I think it's a mindless way to, to read fantasy to not think about contemporary issues and to think about the author as a person because it affects their work very much so and i don't think that that they can be separated because the work is a reflection of them it is an extension of them i you know i'm currently writing a fantasy novel and one of the characters is bi and is very much reflected reflection of myself and kind of my inner thoughts growing up on realizing that i'm not heterosexual so I think that that, you know, we I think that supporting people who deserve your support and understanding when things are problematic and not ignoring that is is the most mindful way to uh, to read science fiction and fantasy, because these these worlds are literally created. And a lot of times science fiction is in the future. So to keep repeating these harmful tropes is really I think a testament to the lack of creativity for on the author's part. Yeah. Uh, and just, uh, I realized I have been neglectful in not mentioning our friend Grant Pierce's uh, work, uh, Hidden King on Twitter. Uh, and he's, um, uh, latest book, Agent of Truth, which is the sequel to The Erased, has uh, a trans lesbian uh, or queer at least uh, character who's just the best and I love her and I want all the best for her in the future. And I also had the pleasure of advising him on writing that character as a trans character uh, because he wanted someone who actually had some experience to look at that over before he published it, which I think is a extremely uh, clever, well, ethical and moral and just good thing to do. Uh, if you don't have that experience, but you want to write about it, have someone look it over. Um, and uh, I mean, I didn't have that many complaints, I'll be honest, but uh, still it's, uh, it's awesome. Um, so um, yeah, I believe out. too because you, Lo, you know I don't care for I don't care about spoilers, which I call content reviews because spoilers is a negative term. Uh, if I had my own, if I was invited on someone else's version of Buddy Banter, I'd want to talk about uh, how content previews should be not <laughs> demonized. And, anyway, but my uh, I do believe also the, the Poppy War one of the characters does turn out to be gay, correct? Because you've read ahead of me. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the yeah. Once again, <laughs> have you heard the gospel? It's, it's like, have you met Ted? But I'm like, hey, have you heard of the Poppy War? Um, so uh, yeah, there are a lot of books out there uh, by authors who are a lot more uh, aware of things that are going on, and I also think that um, it's. It, it, I think it just makes us. Uh, to me, at least, I, I would rather also be a part of these kinds of fandoms that have where the material is a lot more creative and a lot more representative. I would think that the fandom as a whole would uh, would hopefully be more accepting and and more uh, diverse as well. 
you know, I think fandoms benefit from better material. And I think, and it's, yeah. and it's lazy writing just, yeah. you know, in the end. Yeah. Like my shirt says, get your priorities queer. <laughs> exactly. I love that you wear that shirt low. It's perfect. Um, yeah. I felt like it was very appropriate uh, <laughs> for this stream. Okay. So yeah, we've talked about a lot low. Are there any closing thoughts that you have about any of these thing issues we've talked about, any of the fiction that we've mentioned? No, just that this is a flaw uh, I have, by the way, I just, I always say no uh, before actually going on a long spiel. Um, uh, I don't have closing uh, thoughts. I have a closing novel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, but I just think that um, when you do research, uh, for instance, so in social sciences, science and um, humanities, um, you often talk about if the researcher can be completely objective when doing research. Um, and a lot of more contemporary thought is that no, you can never be completely objective because you always have preconceived notions that you bring into um, what you're doing. Even if it's just, I want to research this thing because I'm interested in it that brings something into it from the beginning. So I think it's just impossible to expect that an author of a fictional work would be completely neutral when they write. Uh, so even if we don't have to accept uh, their views always, we can do queer readings of books um, and uh, but we but we have to acknowledge the context and we have to acknowledge uh, where the offer is coming from. And obviously there's whole fields of studies looking into gender and race and disability and whatnot in books. So uh, for us as, you know, uh, just ordinary people enjoying things, I think it's very reasonable that we bring politics into fiction as well. Yeah, and obviously we, uh, <laughs> before we started the stream, Yogi came in the chat and was like, spoiler alert, no, because the question <laughs> is, can we separate <laughs> politics from fantasy? And we really don't think you can. And and I think that we, we've made our case here. We've looked at specific examples of fiction that hopefully you listeners um, at least had some familiarity with, at least... Um, one of them, hopefully you did. Uh, and so I think that we we have shown that the reason that we can't and that marginalized people specifically have an issue with separating art from the artist and from not seeing these contemporary issues um, and just kind of enjoying it in world. And actually, I think my enjoyment of it is enhanced by thinking about these issues because I am interested in issues of colonialism, racism, and sexism, um, which are all intertwined. So I, I think that for me, it, it helps my enjoyment. And that's why I was really glad that you picked this topic because it's something that we're both very passionate about. And, uh, you know, buddy banter is all about the buddy, uh, but I'm still glad that you picked a topic that I have already thought a lot about. Um, uh, so, yeah, so um, low. 
thank you for being my buddy and thank you for bantering with me and thank you very much for picking this topic um and please please check out um Lowe's blog they have a lot of amazing analysis and like I said I am now a podcast so if you want to listen to this I'm on Podbean Spotify Google uh podcasts and um Anchor uh, so if you go to my anchor, you can find all the platforms that I'm on and um, also on Podbean if you like Podbean. Uh, so please um, like, <laughs> subscribe. I've got a little icon there in the bottom right. If you click that little picture of me, then you will subscribe to this channel. If you turn on those notifications, you'll know when I upload something. So tomorrow I'm going to record a, a, a video slash episode with a full panel about the Air Nation from Avatar The Last Airbender. And once again, I have some Song of Ice and Fire content coming up. I'm going to look at black and white and yin and yang symbolism in A Song of Ice and Fire. I've got that Hua Mulan essay coming up where I compare uh, Alar slash Cerbella and Brave Danny Flint to uh, Hua Mulan. And uh, my next His Dark Materials stuffs is going to be with Lo about Mary Malone and how she squares religion and science. And I also have that Coulter essay about her demon and monkey imagery. Um, and I'm working on finishing um, uh, the uh, the Witcher, and I need to um, also get into the Poppy War, um, which you may have heard of a couple times during this episode. Um, and yeah, Amy, good point. Uh, it is late for Lo. It's past midnight for them. They are a trooper. Thank you, because we could have done this earlier and it would have been better for you, but maybe not as many people would have been able to make it into the chat. So thank you, Lo. You are um, you are uh, uh, a... <laughs> I already said trooper, and that's the only word I could think of. Uh, but you, it's very much appreciated, Lo. Uh, so thank you once again for, for being my buddy and bantering with me. Um, did you have last words for the people? Uh... I, I don't know. The, I I had a blast talking to you about this. It was so much fun. Probably one of the just best streams I've been on in uh, in a long time. Um, I wanted to uh, just briefly say uh, a lot of people enjoyed my shirt. Uh, I just want to say that it's uh, from a Swedish um, nonprofit that works works with. Uh, uh, sexual health and reproductive rights um, and uh, you can find this shirt on elise133.com so um, that's e-l-i-s-e -E 133.com um, yeah uh, the, pro the money goes to good stuff um, if you want to have the awesome get your priorities queer shirt they I also have it. other <laughs> shirts um and they do ship to the us um and uh, yeah just thank you all for this it was so much fun uh i'll be back on my trans bs soon enough with an essay about uh, the night of the laughing tree and then more his dark materials, and then we'll see where it gets me. Yay, I'm so excited. Um, yeah, thank you again, Lo, and thanks for staying up late. Uh, please check out all of Lo's links. Follow us both on Twitter. Um, I do polls, and um, I post. I'm currently rereading the X Men comics, so I post a lot of fun screenshots of 60s and 70s problematic X Men lines. Uh, you know, but it's not just then, there's also in the 2000s when. Uh, 
Joss Whedon was writing it. Also very problematic things going on there. So <laughs> I have a really good time, um, even though I'm a huge, huge X fan, uh, showing where it, it needs help and needs work. So yeah. thank you once again, everyone. And uh, we will see you next time. Please subscribe to my channel and to my podcast. And um, I will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.